Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Join me in prayer, if you would. Father, on this Palm Sunday, we we celebrate, we recognize what was surely one of the most paradoxical things that happened during the life of the Lord Jesus. Paradoxical things that would climax in the offense of the cross not many days later. A work that even the disciples would not be able to understand or piece together. A shocking, outrageous defeat that was actually the great eternal triumph of our God, of Israel's God. And as Jesus rode into the city on that day and they laid their garments and the palm fronds on the road and they they sang before him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The exultation and the celebration would very quickly turn to confusion and resentment, even hatred. As Jesus entered the temple and proclaimed his condemnation upon it. Very few people knew how to understand or even where to begin in understanding what he was doing and what it all meant. But we have the, the fortune of hindsight, the fortune of the witness of the New Testament writers who have shown us the meaning of these things and how all that Jesus did and said and was was precisely the fulfillment of all that the Father had revealed, all that the Father had promised. And though they could not understand it at the time, with the coming of the Spirit, these things began to be clear. They began to be discernible. And I pray that, Father, we would not minimize or neglect or abuse our privilege we upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I pray that as you have given to us the insight of the scriptures and the insight of your spirit, that we would be a people who truly labor to know the Messiah in truth, to be conformed to him, and therefore to be true to ourselves as those who share in his life and likeness. So bless our time in the word, teach us, instruct us, Help us to understand perhaps what we don't understand. Give us the eyes and the insight of the first readers of this epistle. And by your good spirit, cause 
the burden of the writer to be uh, the fruitfulness that he sought for his readers caused that to be realized by us today. Help me, help each one uh, present, and Father, meet each according to his need, that Christ would be glorified in each one and in his church through faith. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, last time as we continue to move through chapter 13 of Hebrews, we saw what, at least to me, was kind of a striking thing that the writer challenged his readers to not continue to be taken away, to be carried away, to be seduced by what he called foreign teachings, alien teachings. And he makes it clear that these teachings that he's referring to are actually teachings associated with Judaism itself. And I think the, the thrust of my point last time was to emphasize that with the, the work of the Messiah, all of what had been a part of Mosaic Judaism had now become foreign. These teachings were not foreign because they were pagan, because they were associated with the worship of Baal, or because you know, they were uh, coming out of uh, Platonism or Greek philosophical thought. They weren't foreign because they derived from something or someone other than the God of Israel. They were foreign precisely because they had now found their fulfillment in Jesus. And therefore, to try to return to that former order was to bind themselves to that which, in a very real way, no longer existed. That which could not be embraced any longer. As much as it was revealed by God, given by God, mandated by God, essential for Israel understand, Israel's understanding of itself and its life with God, they had served their purpose in their generation and had now become foreign to hang on to them. So he specifically mentions this idea of foods, which he said were of no profit. No profit to the one who is occupied with them. And specifically, uh, he was referring to food or meats associated with Israel's sacrificial system, as we'll see. But read with me, if you will, uh, beginning in verse 9. We just kind of laid the foundation and looked at, at these basic principles last time in verse 9, but we'll carry through verse 14 today, but it all hangs together. He says again, stop being carried away by varied and strange foreign teachings. It is good for the heart to be established by grace, not by foods, through which those who were occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, they're burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come, the coming city. So his basic contention is this, Israel's priests... And even the people in certain instances ate of the food 
of various offerings associated with Israel's worship of God, the sacrificial system. Those in in particular here, these foods associated with the priestly ministration. And the people and the priests ate of those offerings in regard to the altar, the altars in which they were offered. But he says, Jesus' followers, you, you Hebrews, and not just them as Jewish believers, but all believers is the point. We have an altar that those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat from. They ate from an altar. We have an altar they have no right to eat from. So I want to treat this just kind of in two general uh, parts today. The, the imagery the writer is drawing from. Some of us may be more or less familiar with these ideas. Obviously, he's writing to a Jewish audience who are well familiar with the Levitical system and its offerings. They understood exactly what he was getting at here. But I think it's important for us to uh, sort out this imagery and these ideas a little bit. And then the second piece is to say, okay, what's his point? What's the meaning that he's getting at? What is he ultimately trying to say by drawing out this imagery? Well, the first thing then is this idea of eating from the altar. Eating from the altar. And as he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle cannot eat. He's speaking metaphorically. Hopefully we understand that. He's speaking metaphorically. Israel's priestly system was the way in which God mediated his relationship with Israel. The writer of Hebrews had said the covenant, the covenant is the relational contract between Israel and God. And that covenant, the relationship that it it, uh, put forth and prescribed was mediated through the priesthood. The writer says the covenant was founded on the priesthood. And he uses that as an argument to say where there's a change of covenant, there's a change of priesthood as well. But the point is that the priests mediated the relationship between God and Israel. And they did so in connection with this sacrificial system. And at the center of that is this idea of altars. You had an altar of incense. You had the altar of burnt offering. The altar symbolizes the place, the occasion, and the resultant benefit of the mediating of this relationship between God and Israel. That's the significance of the altar. So the writer is recognizing, he's starting from this premise that Israel's relationship with God and the benefit of it was uh, uh, that provision and that mediation came in connection with priestly mediation at an altar. He says, we have an altar at which those priests have no right to eat. And again, he's not saying that Christians literally have their own altar for worshiping God. That's not what he's saying. In fact, one of the early points of confusion for the Christian community was the fact that here you have these people who are a sect, or at least they're understood, they're recognized as a sect of Judaism, the very earliest Christians. But they have no altars. They have no priests. 
They have no sacrifices. They have no sacred rituals in the sense in which the ancient world practiced religion. And that was true of all uh, of the entire ancient world. It was a very puzzling thing. How can these be a people who worship this God, supposedly the God of Israel, and yet they have none of these things? They have no altars. Even Judaism, as much as it was very distinct from pagan religions, it still had things that were recognizable as the way in which human beings worship their gods. You had altars, you had a priesthood, you had sacrifices, you had sacred rituals. But these Christians didn't have those things. And so it was hard to put them in a box and know what exactly they're working with because the way in which people would worship their gods was a part of how they identified themselves, how the world would identify them. This is my people, these are our gods, these are our rituals. So it was very much a part of the the structure of the ancient world. And here you have these people who actually have no altars So what he's saying essentially is Jesus' followers enjoy a, if you will, sacrificial provision that is unique to them. Sacrificial provision in the sense of a communion with God and a nurturing of that communion that isn't available to those who serve the altars in association with the tabernacle. Now, there wasn't a tabernacle at the time that he's writing, but the writer, the the very first manifestation of God's sanctuary was the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? It eventually was replaced by the temple in Jerusalem, and the temple in Jerusalem is what exists at the time that they're rebuilt, uh, that they're, the writer's writing this epistle. But he speaks in terms of the tabernacle as representing the sacred place, the place where God is encountered. So when he speaks of eating from the altar, he's talking about a way in which people relate to and interact with and are provided for by the God that they worship. And we have an altar that these cannot eat from. The second thing that he says then is that the body of those animals, and this is by way of explanation, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. And what he's getting at specifically is this idea of eating of the sacrificial offering. And there were certain offerings in Israel, guilt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, in which the priest and or in some some circumstances, the offerer himself would eat of the offering. And even in the sin offerings, certain sin offerings, the priest would eat of the meat of the sacrificed animal. There were definitions and prescriptions in it, but the priest would actually eat of the sacrificial meat. But in the instances of sin offerings where the blood of the sacrificed animal was brought into the sanctuary, a la Yom Kippur, and I think that's what he has fundamentally in mind here, the Day of Atonement, as we've gone through dealing with the priesthood and the high priestly role. It's the, the epistles most focused on Yom Kippur. That was the climactic, epitomizing uh, sacrificial ritual in Israel's life. 
once a year, high priest in the Holy of Holies. That's the only occasion in which that would happen. But any, and that was itself a very specialized sin offering, but in any sin offering where the blood of the offering was brought into the sanctuary, in those cases, none of the meat of the sacrificed animal was eaten. Its fat would be removed, um, the lobes of its liver, its kidneys, you know, burned on the, the uh, brazen altar outside of the tabernacle. But the body, the carcass, the flesh and the bones of that animal were taken outside of the camp and burned. The meat of those sin offerings where the blood is actually presented to God, that meat is not eaten. Those carcasses are burned outside the camp. And you can read that in Leviticus 4, the general provision of the sin offering. And you see the same thing also uh, in Leviticus 16, the prescription of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, which, as I say, was a specialized version of Israel's sin offering. Well, there's the basic images that he's drawing from. And what he's doing is he's drawing on those images very familiar to his readers in order to correlate them with the work of Christ in order to underscore a critical dimension of what it is to be faithful. The whole of the epistle focuses on this obligation of faithfulness to the Messiah. And because he's writing to Jewish believers, the, the great threat or you know, pressure against their faithfulness is the pressure of their Jewish countrymen, the solicitation and inducement to it in some ways, to some extent, to return to their Jewish practices, their Judaism. Now, it's not going to be the same for us, but his central thrust is, again, the absolute crucial obligation of faithfulness to the Messiah in the light of what has come in him. And for his Jewish readers, there is no Judaism really to return to. It has been taken up in the Messiah. There's nothing to return to. But that's what he's doing with this imagery. He's now going to tie it to the way in which it correlates with the Messiah himself in order to ultimately give them an exhortation to faithfulness. So the first thing that, that he draws out in this is that Jesus is the true sin offering. And, you know, that's nothing new. Uh, obviously, he has dealt with that throughout this context, uh, throughout this epistle whether with respect to the priestly work or to the offering itself. Jesus fulfilled both dimensions, both aspects of Israel's sin offering, and really ultimately all of its offerings, but here the sin offering. He's both the sacrificing priest and he's also the offering itself. He fulfills the role of the high priest, but he also fulfills the role of the sacrificial animal. The writer says he shed his own blood in order to sanctify the people. And then he, as it were, in the imagery, not literally, but he carried his own blood, presented his own blood to the Father, not in the earthly sanctuary, but in the sanctuary in the heavenlies, not made with hands. He's already said that earlier in chapter 9, right? 
He entered that sanctuary not made with hands, not with the blood of bulls and goats, which was the, those were the sacrificial animals on Yom Kippur, but with his own precious blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So he is the fulfillment of the sin offering. But that being a sin offering in which the blood of the sacrifice is presented to God in his sanctuary, the, the implication is that the body of the sacrificed animal in Israel's sin offerings was burned outside the camp. Therefore, there is some correlation of that with him. As it were, the disposing of his body outside of the camp for the fulfillment, for the correlation to be complete. This, his sacrifice was the fulfillment of Israel's sin offering in which the blood is presented. Therefore, there's this second piece, which is that the, the body is not eaten. It is burned outside of the camp. That's the correlation that he's working with here. Well, there's two distinctives, though. Jesus fulfills that, but there's two distinctives. And the first is this issue of suffering, The sin offering in Israel's history didn't suffer outside the camp. The animal that was offered for the sin offering was sacrificed at the doorway to the the tent of meeting or the doorway going into the temple, into the holy place. Right outside of that doorway where you had the, the laver and the brazen altar. The animal suffered unto death inside the camp, right outside the sanctuary. But he says that he suffered outside of the camp. The, the, the destruction of his body that, that you know, is represented outside of the camp in, in correlation with Israel's sin offering, that destruction of his body included the sacrificial ritual itself. The second thing is that Jesus' ordeal outside the camp was a matter of reproach. Fault-finding, guilt, condemnation is the idea. The carcasses of Israel's sin offerings were burned outside of the camp. The point is away from Yahweh's presence. If you go back and look at the Old Testament idea of the camp and inside and outside the camp, it was the realm of cleanness versus the realm of uncleanness. And when people were defiled by disease or, or you know, contact with a dead body or whatever, there was an outside of the camp thing and and some sort of ritual of cleanness, a cleansing ritual in order for a person to be gathered back into the household of Israel. So the body is burned outside of the camp to convey the symbolism that the uncleanness of the offender for whom the animal was sacrificed, the uncleanness is transferred to the flesh of that animal. And its uncleanness is consumed outside of the camp in a designated place. 
And the person, you, you can read this in the, uh, um, the treatment of the prescription of Yom Kippur in Leviticus 16. The person who burns the body of the animal outside of the camp then has to wash his clothes and wash himself. Then he can return to the camp because he's defiled by interacting with the carcass of the animal that's defiled. And it's not defiled because it's dead per se. It's defiled because it has had transferred to it the uncleanness, the defilement of the sinful offerer, the one on whose behalf the animal was sacrificed. So the blood is presented inside the camp, in a holy place, to the Lord is an offering of atonement, but the defilement associated with sin is transferred to the animal such that it's dis- disposed of outside of the camp. Well, obviously, to Jesus' Jewish detractors, it was, uh, it was eminently appropriate, even necessary, that he should die outside the camp. Why? Because they viewed him as unclean. They regarded him as unclean, as a sinner. He was an apostate. He had forsaken Israel's God and Israel's Torah. He needed to be disposed of outside the camp. And even practically, they were not going to allow the Romans to crucify someone inside of the city, inside of the holy encampment. So he was taken out and put to death in an unholy place, an unclean place, as an unclean offender. And yet, that too was a crucial part of his fulfillment of the sin offering and its significance The uncleanness of the sin offering, as I've said, was transferred to the flesh of the sin offering. And so, here's the writer's point, Jesus himself was appointed to bear the reproach, the guilt, the condemnation of Israel and the nations. If you go back and read Isaiah 53, this is what you see. The iniquities of us all were laid on him. He was regarded as and treated as a violator, someone stricken of God, afflicted. But he bore their iniquities for the sake of the Father accomplishing this work of atonement. Well, here's, again, and what the writer is doing, there's lots of irony in all of this. There's paradox, there's irony. It's like, it's this, but yeah, but what about that? What about, and one of the important points of irony here is that the Jews were right in assigning uncleanness to Jesus, crucifying him outside of the camp. What they didn't understand is that it was their uncleanness and the uncleanness of the world that he was bearing. That's what Isaiah 53 says in various ways throughout that context of the suffering servant. It was our sickness, it was our infirmities, it was our disease that he bore. He bore our iniquities. And when the father sees the travail of his life, then he will be satisfied. The Jews were right, 
but they didn't recognize that it was their defilement, their rebellion that he carried. Well, where is the writer going with this? What does this have to do with faithfulness, as I say? Well, because he says that this one must be encountered outside the camp. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people. Ironically, in the Jews' way of thinking, all cleansing, all dealing with a lack of sanctity, a lack of cleanness, all violation, all of that was centered in the temple itself. There was no such thing as remedying the problem of uncleanness or dealing with offense or violation or guilt except in connection with the temple. That's hugely significant even as Jesus is preparing. He's he's teaching what the significance of his impending death is when he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We often say, oh, he cleansed the temple. No, he didn't cleanse the temple. He pronounced condemnation on the temple. You have turned it into a den of thieves. And he was making the point that the temple's purpose, its role in God's purposes, and the mediating priesthood, all of that is reaching its end. And the writer says that Jesus, to sanctify the people, did so outside the camp, outside the realm of cleanness. You see, it may not mean a lot to us, but to a Jewish audience, it's like, How can there be the sanctifying of the people in an unclean place? You're sanctified in connection with the temple and its ministration. And as I said, on Palm Sunday, Jesus pronounced his condemnation on the temple. They all saw him, or many saw him, the whole Palm Sunday thing, the triumphal procession, as we call it, is them connecting him with the Zechariah context of the coming king. Hosanna to the son of David, the king of Israel. But as soon as he condemns the temple, it's like, whoa, we're not sure about this guy. And even in his trial, that's a huge issue with the priests, right? What he said about the temple, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? So the writer is, again, pressing them to see how all of these things have been transformed, fulfilled in Jesus, but in a way that has put a kind of paradoxical, ironic twist on them. Jerusalem, with the temple at its center, was the holy city, the place where God had put his name. The place where you had to go to encounter him. Three times a year, every Israelite who could had to go up to Jerusalem. That was the great offense of Jeroboam when he built his altars at Dan and Bethel so that when when the kingdom was divided, so his subjects wouldn't go back to Jerusalem. He didn't want them going back. They'd be sucked back into David's kingdom. So he said, we'll build our own altars. We'll have our own priesthood. We'll worship Yahweh here at Dan and Bethel. And God had said, no, three times a year they must all come to Jerusalem. That's what was happening at Pentecost when you see in Acts 2. All these Jews from all over the kingdom are there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in the Jewish reckoning, was the center of the earth. Because God's temple was there. And the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together. It was the place where God 
was present in and interactive with the world he created. You see this in the Psalms. God's throne is in heaven, but the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of his feet. It's the footstool of his throne. God is enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. If you were going to encounter God, if you were going to worship him, you had to go to him where he was found. And even Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he recognized prophetically, he said, God, this is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, even what Jesus is drawing on 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 Palm Sunday. That all the nations will come here to meet you. This is not just for your people, Israel. This is for the whole world, the place where heaven and earth come together. Jesus, being driven from Jerusalem to Golgotha, spoke powerfully of Israel's rejection of him as an apostate. They were driving him from God's holy city, from God's sacred space. And the way that they, the way that they viewed Jesus is the way that they also viewed his followers. If he was an apostate, then they're apostates. If he's unclean, they're unclean. And so the Jewish, to keep it in this context, in this imagery, the Jewish pressure being brought to bear against these Hebrew believers was you have, by your uncleanness, put yourself outside the camp. You need to wash yourselves in order that you can return to the camp of Israel. And that washing involves the repentance of renouncing Jesus as the Messiah so that you can return and be a part of God's encampment. They needed to be persuaded by whatever means to make themselves clean again so they could return to the camp. Well, the writer wanted his readers, his Jewish believing readers, to understand that it was actually those Israelites, the people of Israel, who were the unclean ones. They were the ones who were actually outside of the camp, outside of the covenant household. In the Messiah, God is now reconstituting his covenant people, the Abrahamic people, the Israel of God. God is reconstituting his covenant people in the resurrected Messiah. And cleansing from sin is now obtained through his death as the unique sin offering that the Levitical counterparts only prefigured. And that means, secondly, then, that consecration, cleansing, and, and, and you know, being rejoined to God, in a sense, from the alienation of uncleanness or defilement, consecration to Israel's God actually involves rejecting the temple and rejecting its priesthood. These are profoundly shocking statements in a Jewish context to make. Because consecration and dealing with sin and relationship with God, those things were precisely temple-based. They were precisely tied to the priesthood. The covenant was founded on the priesthood. And he says, no, consecration to God as the people in the Messiah... That consecration is found in rejecting the temple and its ordinances and owning the reproach that fell on the one who himself is the true and the everlasting sanctuary.
If the temple had served its purpose and found its fulfillment, and it had, and I'm not going to read all these passages, but they're in the notes. You can go and look at them. We we can look at one. Um, Let's take a look at uh, Luke chapter 19. This is actually in the context of the triumphal entry. There's the account of the triumphal entry uh, just a few verses up, but we'll pick it up at verse 41 of Luke 19. This is when he's riding into Jerusalem. When he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, Jerusalem, the things which make for peace... But now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, surround you, hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. The city and the temple. This is the Roman destruction that's coming in 70 AD. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He entered the temple and began casting out those who were selling, saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He's not cleansing the temple. He's pronouncing condemnation on it. And the destruction is going to shortly come upon it. Do you see, even when the disciples said, you know, do you see this beautiful building and look at all the adornment? Herod had spent decades... Um, uh, elaborating and, and, and uh, you know, adding to and, and making elaborate the, the temple in order to win the favor of the people. It didn't work. But the temple was at its, its pinnacle of grandeur and glory at that time. And Jesus said, all this grandeur, all this glory, not one stone's going to be left upon another. It's all going to be thrown down. Jerusalem and its temple no longer served their purpose. They had found their fulfillment in Jesus. The Messiah was now the point where heaven and earth converged. If you even look in Isaiah's prophecy, it says in chapter 2, In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will become the chief of the mountains and all the nations will stream to it. The whole world is going to come to Yahweh's mountain where his sanctuary is, and there they will encounter and worship the Lord. Very Israelite, very temple. That's the way it worked. If you were encounter God, you came to Jerusalem. And then you go a few chapters down in chapter 11, and it's the root and stem of Jesse who rises as a banner who summons the nations to himself. He becomes the place and the point at which the nations and Israel itself encounters and worships and knows God. And you see this particularly in John's gospel, right? You see this over and over again, how he's the true sanctuary. He is the one in whom the sanctuary is found. He is the one where heaven and earth come together. He is the place and the circumstance in which men, human beings, encounter the living God. So Jerusalem and its temple no longer served that function, and quite the opposite, they were utterly defiled because of the uncleanness of the priests and the people and the sacrificial system, the rulers, and therefore appointed to be torn down. Even 
as Jerusalem stood, the New Testament refers to it as an unclean place. Paul says the earthly Jerusalem is enslaved with her children. And in Revelation 11, Jerusalem is called that which is spiritually Sodom and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is an unclean place, haunt of jackals and every unclean thing, appointed for destruction. It served its purpose, and those realities are now yes and amen in the Messiah. So what is the writer's point then? Those who expelled Jesus from the camp, they expelled him because Jerusalem is holy. Its temple is holy. Remember even Caiaphas, when, when everyone's going out after Jesus, after the raising of Lazarus, and he says, this is getting out of control. We can't let this go on. If we let this go on, it's becoming too big of a hubbub and all the crowds and all the noise and all the cacophony. The Romans are going to come and they're going to take this place and destroy the city. It had only been a generation earlier when with uh, Judas the Galilean, the Romans had come. He claimed to be the Messiah, raised a following. The Romans came, crushed it, killed thousands of people. And Caiaphas says, we can't let this go on. The same thing's going to happen again. The Romans are going to come. They're not going to tolerate this. And they're going to this time destroy the city and destroy the temple. And he spoke better than he knew. But they were jealous for Jerusalem. They were jealous for the temple. They were jealous for this sacred space. This is the dwelling of God. This is where his name is. This is where God is encountered. And the writer is saying, no. No. God has now established a new sacred space. And he's going to, whether the Jews understood it, I don't even know that the writer of Hebrews understood it, but very shortly, that which Israel regarded as the most sacred space on earth is to be destroyed as an unclean habitation. God is going to come and destroy that unclean city and its defiled sanctuary. The city that he has promised, that he has pledged, the dwelling, the habitation, sacred space is the new Jerusalem that has already come down out of heaven in the sun. Now, I'm not saying there's no future consummative significance to Revelation 21 and 22, but substantially what is conveyed there has already happened. Because the interpretation of the new Jerusalem coming down is now the dwelling of God is with men. God is their God. They are his people. And in the Messiah, that's yes and amen. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say, you have come to the new Jerusalem. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The abiding city was no longer Jerusalem. This place where God is encountered, where the sanctuary, where the dwelling of God is, is no longer Jerusalem. In fact, it is in a place that the world regards as an unclean place. That's the point he's making. Let us continually go out to him outside the camp. 
outside the camp. What? Go from the place of cleanness? Go from this arena that God has established where he's put his name, the place of, of, of interface, of worship, of mediation, of sacrifice? Go to him to some unclean place? There's the paradox and the irony. It's all been turned around. So just to sum up, and again, another point of irony, the priests, specifically in what the writer is saying here, the the Israelite Levitical priests were not allowed to eat from their own altar of the sin offering where the blood was brought into the sanctuary. Why? Because the animals were burned outside the camp. So even in the case of their own altar, they weren't permitted to eat. He says, but they're not permitted to eat of this altar that is associated with the Messiah. Not because the body's burned outside the camp, but because they have no share in him. They have no share in him. The altar that signifies Jesus' followers' worship and fellowship with God is this new altar. It's associated with Jesus himself as the place where God is encountered in worship. And those who served the tabernacle, which was still, the temple was still standing at this time, not for long, but it was. And he says to his readers, those who are trying to call you back, those who are saying you've abandoned the God of Israel, you've abandoned Torah, you've abandoned Moses. He says, no, all of that has passed away in Jesus. And look at the fact that the priests can't even eat of their own offering, for instance, on Yom Kippur. They can't eat of their own altar. Well, I tell you, they can't eat of this altar associated with the fulfilled sin offering that has come in the Messiah himself. Not because it's prohibited to them, but because they are not sharers in him. Because they have renounced him. And yet... That sacrificial flesh, the flesh of the true sin offering, the flesh of the offering that fulfills Yom Kippur and all the sin offerings, is flesh that is to be eaten. When he says, we have an altar that those who serve the ministration in the tabernacle can't eat of, the unspoken second piece of that is, but we eat of it. We eat of it. They can't, but we do. Jesus can and must be ingested by his worshipers. Think again about John uh, chapter 6. He feeds the 5,000. He goes across the lake. They follow him over and they're saying, Lord, feed us again. Feed us again. And he says, you, you work for food that perishes. Work for the food that nourishes to true life, the life of eternity which the Son of Man will give to you. The, the bread that Moses gave to Israel, they ate of it and they died. The bread that I give, the one who eats of it will never die. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves, right? It was clear from the beginning, and even what we call the Lord's table testifies to the fact that the flesh of this sin offering is to be ingested. Not just once, but as a perpetual nourishing. But in order to feed on this sacrifice, we have to go to it where it is. 
We have to go to Jesus where he is. Where is he? In an unclean place, in a place of reproach. Not because it's actually unclean, but because in our human natural way of thinking, that's unclean. He's unclean. His sacrifice, his reproach, all of that was an outside-the-camp idea. And those who feed on him must share in that reproach. His reproach, not our reproach, his reproach. The condemnation, the opposition that fell upon him. Why? Fundamentally because of jealousy for the earthly cities. That's verse 14. Or verse 13, rather. Um, well, no, I've got to get on the right chapter here. Verse, again, verse 13. Let's, let us go out to him. This, this carries the idea of a perpetual going out to him, perpetually. This is to be the disposition and orientation of your life, going out to him outside the camp. The, pe- the place of apparent uncleanness, the place of apparent condemnation, going to him there outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For, here's the explanation, here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So here's my point. When we think about, okay, this place versus this place, this was the holy place, this is the holy place, but this is the place of reproach, this is the place of condemnation. Go from here out to there. What is it that drove Jesus from here to there? What is it that, that, that caused this to be taken away from him and this to be the place? It was the reproach that fell on him. Well, that reproach was a misjudging of him. A condemning, a condemnation, uh, a finding of guilt, a finding of wrongfulness. And what made the Jews view him in that way? Because he was a threat to the status quo. He was a threat to what they knew. He said, all of this has to be rethought and interpreted and transformed in me. And they said, no, no. And that's why I say this condemnation, this, this opposition that is behind this reproach, that is in that place of uncleanness, is driven by jealousy for earthly cities. Earthly habitations that we think will endure, that we think are significant, that we think are true, that we think are right, that we think are proper. These Cities that he says don't last are all the cherished habitations of the former order that Jesus condemned and put to death in himself. If you will, all of the patterns and paradigms and priorities that characterize the old creation, old ways of thinking, old ways of understanding, old ways of ordering our lives, old ways of being human, There is no lasting habitation here. Jesus has put to death all of what we understood to be human existence and has brought forth a new creation in himself. That's what ultimately the writer is getting at. And they would have thought in terms of Jerusalem, this is the place, this is the temple, this is the city, this is where God is to be encountered. And he said, no, it's all been flipped on its head. 
The only way you can encounter God now, the only way you can live out this relationship with God is in the context of Jesus' reproach. And you'll bear his reproach when you understand and approach and live life the way he did. And so I just want to end then reading Matthew 16. Now this is as Jesus is beginning to, you know, he's kind of making his way towards Jerusalem. It's heading in that direction. But he's at Caesarea Philippi. And I want you to listen to all of this in the light of, again, what what we've been hearing the, the writer of Hebrews say. And think about even what he talks about this taking up your cross idea. This is Matthew 16, verse 13 and following. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say the Son of Man is? What do people think about me? Who do they think I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some say Elijah Others, Jeremiah, remember the promise was that Elijah was going to come before the great and awesome day of Yahweh. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets come back to life. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. Simon becomes Petros, the the little stone, the stone. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. The power of death, the power of condemnation. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now here it's all very oriented towards Peter, but two chapters later he's going to entrust this these keys of the kingdom, this, this truth. He's going to entrust it to all of the 12. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be because it has been bound in heaven is the way you should read it. And whatever you loose on earth shall be because it will have been loosed in heaven. You will be the ones on the earth who testify of what God has done. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. But from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Talk about blowing their heads up. They had no category for that, no concept of a dying Messiah. And I will suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the learned men, the ones who know the scriptures, the ones who are devoted to God, the ones who are zealous for his Torah, the ones who are the leading godly men in Israel. I will suffer many, hands, uh, many things at their hands and be killed and then raised up on the third day. Now, Peter, the one who just confessed him as the Messiah, takes him aside and says, God forbid it, Lord, we'll never allow this to happen to you. What's he saying? You're the Messiah. This can't happen to the Messiah. This is who Messiah is. This is what Messiah will do. This is what it will look like. What you're talking about doesn't fit that. This can't happen. 
will never allow it to happen. And what does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, because God has revealed this to you. No, get behind me, Satan. You are stumbling block to me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You're thinking about this in a human way. You're not understanding what I'm telling you. You're a hindrance to me because you want to look at even me as Messiah and the the work that I'll do and the significance and the outcome of it. You want to look at that through natural eyes. You want to look at it, if you will, with the mind of the adversary himself. Four, whoever wish, or uh, let me back, I got one verse ahead. If anyone, he turns now to all the disciples, they're all together hearing all of this, and he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, what does he mean? To embrace me and follow me, to own me in truth, to be my followers, Then let them deny themselves. Let them deny what they think this really is and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose his life. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what shall a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? His essential being. This is all suke throughout. The NAS says life and then soul, but it's all the same word, suke his essential self. If he gains the whole world and forfeits himself, what will a man give in exchange for himself? What will a man give in exchange for himself? See, we want to take this idea of take up your cross and follow me as, oh, okay, you know, I, I'm going to deny myself this at Lent or, you know, or I'm, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that or I'm only going to play golf once a month or whatever it happens to be. I'm going to take up my cross and deny myself, my earthly natural desires or whatever. And, and Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying whoever would come after me, whoever would embrace me, whoever would propagate me to the world, whoever would bind and loose what I have bound and loose, what my Father has declared and done in heaven, whoever would be a truthful witness, a truthful follower, must die to life as he understands it and knows it. He must find his life in me. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, I live Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live. The life that I live, I live out of the generating power of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Jesus is saying, take up your cross, he's saying, my cross represents my no to natural humanness, to Adamic humanness, my no to the cursed world. I am taking that I am condemning it. I'm putting it to death in myself. If you would be followers of me, if you would be my fragrance, if you would testify to what I testify and do my work in the world, then you must also bear the same testimony of no against Adamic humanness. If any man is in Christ, new creation. He's not calling for denying ourselves fun things that we would want to do. I'll only do vacation once a year or whatever. Maybe we should only do vacation. I don't know. But, you know, that's not his point. His point is owning him as he really is. Going to him outside the camp. 
the place of reproach. That's what Paul means when he says, whoever will live godly in Christ Jesus will face hostility, opposition, confusion, resentment, dissembling, right? Qualifying, rationalizing. What I, what Jesus encountered as the one who testifies to the truth and what it is to truly live a human life in this world, all who will follow him will encounter the same thing. We must go to him outside the camp. It's what John meant when he said, do not love the world and the things in the world. This world, life as we know it, life as we experience it, he says that's been condemned and put to death in the Messiah. We have to live as those who are raised up, seated in the heavenly places in him. We have to deny and set aside the cherished habitations of this life and this world, whether Jewish or Gentile or atheist or pagan or religious or whatever, and we have to encounter and be with Jesus where he is, and it's not in the camp. It's not in the camp as the world knows it. This is the exhortation to faithfulness. We cannot be faithful if we're not faithful to him in truth. Father, I pray that you would help us with these things. Um, I, I truly don't believe they're confusing things, but I do think that it perhaps is a paradigm shift in our thinking. And we certainly don't tend to naturally understand how comprehensively and how radically all things have changed in Christ and his resurrection. By his death and resurrection, the world as it had existed, the world as it has always been known, the world as human beings have always lived in it and suffered in it and exulted in it and celebrated in it and thrived in it, that world has been condemned and put to death. Just as these Hebrew believers, there was no Judaism for them to return to in a very real way. For us, there is no former order of things to return to. We cannot rebuild what you have destroyed. I pray, Father, that we would live authentically, truly, faithfully in this world. And that means being with Jesus outside the camp. Deal with us with our sacred cows. Deal with us with our natural priorities, with our natural thinking, even with our natural religion, our natural conceptions. Just as Peter could say, you're the Messiah, but I can't let you be that kind of Messiah. I pray that our confession of Christ would be in truth and that we would be bound to him in truth and that we would strive in all things to grow up in him in truth and that we would be ministers of that truth to one another. This was Paul's burden. Paul gave his life to seeing Christ formed in people and I pray that that would be the case with us.
the time is past for living that old way. The night has passed, the day has come. May we be children of the light, children of the day, that Christ would be exalted in his church and therefore in the world, that the world would see him in truth by seeing him in his church. We ask for your mercy for us in this regard, Father. Don't let us alone. Don't let us be complacent. Don't let us be content with a superficial, trivial faith. May we be a faithful people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.